Coming up on this week's show, we remember the late, great Chuck Peddle. A new way to play N64 games on your Switch. And we talk unreleased consoles and more with Kieran Hawkins. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 205. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very happy new year. Woo! Our first show of 2020. Yeah. Yeah, that's gone so quick. And have we decided this is going to be the 20s now? So I was talking about this with my missus the other day. You know the 2000s, yeah. as we called it. Then it was the noughties, or the aughts, as they call yeah, it in America. Yeah. Last decade was like, what, the 10s or the teenies, I've heard it called. Yeah. Can we all agree this is a 20s? This is the, well, the one I'm hearing is the roaring 20s. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but then after the 20s, you've got the 30s, and everyone's jumping off buildings in financial crashes. So. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Hopefully history won't repeat itself no. in that regard. But it is great to be here in a brand new decade, and obviously more retro is going to be made, I'm sure. So a lot of people over the weekend going, that's the year 2000s, officially retro now, so, you know. That, that opens up a whole new like window for us <laughs> on the podcast. Oh, we can talk about it now. It's 20 years old. Now, well, hopefully you're feeling all that uh, nicely relaxed and probably quite stuffed after the Christmas and New Year break. I think I'll probably put on about half a stone over Christmas. Oh, yeah, and it, it was good. You know, we did some different stuff. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the stream that we did. Yeah, uh, yeah. that was loads of that fun now. Really fun. We didn't really talk about it on the last episode because it was a Christmas quiz and actually we had that much going on. We didn't really give it much of a mention, but we did do. Um, it was kind of between, well, actually the weekend before Christmas, wasn't it? We did it. Uh, it was around Ravi's house. We did yeah. a stream, us three, and Neil from Retro Man Cave. And we went around Ravi's, all got together, played a lot of our video games, and raised money for a really good charity um, called Cash for Kids, which um, helped out kids at Christmas time. And we want to say a huge thank you to everyone who made a super chat donation. We actually made, in the end, $200. That's awesome. Yeah, and, so. you know, I was surprised that nothing broke, and the stream, it was actually quite good quality. We had a few yeah. mic problems, <laughs> but, you know, now we're used to it. This is maybe something well, we can explore. I just want to say a massive thank you as well. You know, Dan and Ravi said to me the day before, oh, yeah, we're doing a charity donate button. And I was really nervous that we were going to look like idiots. Like, oh, we made, we made five dollars, yeah, even but, more than we normally do. Yeah, no, um, I was really, really, really blown away by how many people actually got involved, yeah. and how many people followed it, and how many people hit that donate button. So it was really amazing, really, really good. Yeah, it was one hundred fifty-seven dollars we made through the super chat. We rounded it up to two hundred, made, made that donation to the charity. So yeah, it was absolutely worthwhile doing it. Loads of fun too. Ravi got on the decks, did a bit of a, an Amiga sesh yeah. after as well. So if you want to watch the whole thing, it's actually on our website, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a link on our website and it's on your channel. Dan. Yeah, yeah. So theretroad.com if you want to watch it back. It's about two and a half, three hours long, I think. Yeah, so. yeah. A lot of Christmas <laughs> good load party. of game in there. Now, it's a good start to 2020 for this podcast as well. We've got a great guest this week. Now, it's someone actually Joe mentioned a couple of weeks ago on one of your retro picks. And this is uh, Kieran Hawkin, Laird's uh, Lair. Yeah. And I remember thinking after the time, I thought, we've never had him on before. Yeah, because you said straight away, you were like, yeah. oh, he's actually a friend of mine. Like, yeah. he's, a, he's a fan of the show. I'm a fan of his. And I was like, oh, wicked, because he just popped up on, like, YouTube Recommended. Uh, you know, I just I kind of, like, watch YouTube every night, like I watch TV. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, yeah, I watched some of his videos. I thought they were really interesting talking about all these unreleased consoles and stuff. And then that, like, kind of just all of a sudden got the ball rolling. And then did he reach out to you, did he? And hey, we've been talking. I said, we've yeah. never had you on. Let's, let's get you on yeah, the podcast. Because yeah. actually, I mean, not only does he do his YouTube channel, but also <laughs> he's published. We were working this out. 43 books in yeah. the last decade. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then also Ravi just told me 
uh, because I wasn't part of the interview, unfortunately. He, he also writes for Retro Gamer magazine. Yeah, as well. for Retro Gamer for yeah. several years. He also um, he's writing a new book at the moment that's going to be out in April, I believe. We'll, okay, which we'll talk more about in the interview with uh, Sam Dye from Bitmap Books, all about the Atari Twenty Six Hundred and the Seventy Eight Hundred Visual Compendium book. Wow, which are, is actually officially endorsed by Atari and awesome. probably going to be Bitmap Books' biggest book yet. It's, just, oh, wow. it's a good chat for uh, Jag fans. This one, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things we were talking about when we you know mentioned him on the show a couple of weeks ago, Kieran actually does a lot of videos kind of exploring the story of unreleased consoles yes. so that's an angle that we really went into with him in this uh, this interview talking about stuff like the sega saturn 2 yeah that was apparently going to be a thing well there we go in television apparently had th- a third fourth and possibly fifth console planned that actually didn't happen because of the video game crash did you know that the uh, the Dreamcast was going to be in a set-top box made by Pace? We do those cable that. boxes and all that kind of thing. Oh, wow. So, I'm going to have to listen to this one. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting interview. If you're into your kind of unreleased and what could have been. And also some, uh, you know, good Atari chat, obviously, with Kieran. Um, really good guest this week. Our first one of 2020. Kieran Hawkin is coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, this is a bit of the show where normally each week we give a huge thank you to people and companies who've allowed this show to continue each week. This week, we want to dedicate the whole thing to you. If you've ever made a donation into the running of this show, because, I mean, now now that we're into 2020, we started this show January 2016. So this is actually our fourth birthday. That's crazy. I didn't yeah. even think of that. I just realized that as well. <laughs> yeah. So happy birthday to us as well. But... We couldn't have got this far without your help. I mean, we were talking before, actually. You know, we started this for a bit of a laugh, you know, a bit of a hobby when we started doing it. I paid for all the website costs out of my own pocket. Um, Ravi was paying for, like, the hosting when we were yeah. on SoundCloud before. We had domain registration, all that stuff. I mean, we didn't mind paying for it ourselves. But now, thanks to you guys, it means that actually we don't have to pay to come in and do this podcast. Yeah. You help us take care of all these running costs week in, week out. And they're actually more than you might think, doing a weekly podcast, all the distribution, the hosting, the website costs, which all obviously are going to be renewed this month, being that it is our anniversary. So anyone that's made a donation into the running of the show has really helped out with that over the years. And uh, how do you make a donation then? Into the Hall of Fame. Who are you Joe. asking me? Oh, asking of course me it's again. you. I knew You've had a couple of weeks off going to embarrass me. So to get onto our very, very prestigious Hall of Fame um, and for being very, very amazing in helping us out, you simply go onto our website, which is theretrohour.com. You go into the supporters section, which is in the top left-hand corner. Uh, is that right, left? I believe it is, yeah. It is on the left, left I believe. Right. <laughs> it's on the right, it's on the right, it's always right. You'll find it. <laughs> and there is a supporters button uh, where you can donate through PayPal. And like Dan says, every single penny just goes back into the run of the yep. podcast and we really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. And then, you know, it's thanks to you that this show is going to keep coming out every week throughout 2020. And of course, for doing that, you will find yourself in the very prestigious Hall of Fame and get a mention in a future episode of the podcast. Just like this week, our very good friend, Steve Fletcher from Waven Studios. Philip Baxter, James Alston, and Pip Naylor, who all made donations into the running of the show. Honestly, guys, that is massively appreciated. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find that link, as Joe said, on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Kieran Hawkins, some good stories that we need to talk about this week. Um, one that was particularly sad actually happened between Christmas and New Year, a true pioneer of the computer industry. Sadly, he's no longer with us, and this is Chuck Peddle. Uh, he was behind the, uh, the 6502 processor, and that was used in so many early microcomputers, wasn't it? Yeah, so Chuck was an uh, absolutely amazing figure. Like, if you think about computers before Chuck came, yeah. they were in huge rooms, 
you know, they weren't accessible for people. You, you wouldn't have a micro. And he kind of helped create the micro. And it's very interesting. He worked for Moss Technology. And when they actually created the um, early chip, which was a $25 chip, which was a 6501, um, he went out to Westcon, this convention in 1975, to show it off. But Moss were told... Uh, it, it was too highbrow for them. Right. They weren't allowed to exhibit there. So what he did was he actually hired a hotel room next to the event and he had two jars and they all had newly minted chips in and all the people who wanted these chips would come up, but he didn't tell anybody that all the chips at the bottom were all completely wrong right. <laughs> not working. So it was a good deal. But then after that came the 6502. Yeah. And the 6502, was it was it was meant to be a prototype. It was meant to just be a demo. But basically, this ended up getting used for the first Apple computer. You know, all those little terminal kind of computers were created just with this chip. And without kind of Chuck, it, it would have never happened. Well, a few of the commercial products this chip was used in the Apple II. Um, Commodore VIC-20, the NES. Oh, really? Is a chip. All the Atari 8-bit computers and lots of arcade games. The Oric computers, a BBC Micro uh, from Acorn as well. So that's just a few of the machines that used this chip. So if you've ever used any of those machines or you've got memories of them, you've got Chuck to thank for it. So um, very sad that we lost a true icon of the PC industry. Rest in peace, Chuck Pedal. Actually, we had another loss as well. The guy who was actually the fan of the bulletin board system. Yeah, so we lost uh, Randy Seuss yeah. as well. And the bulletin board system, uh, we probably don't need to tell many listeners, but we will. It's a f- absolutely fantastic system that was online before the internet and you could basically dial up to a modem okay, uh, and you could connect to a computer and then you could leave a message and go off someone else would leave a message on there you'd be able to transfer files and stuff yeah, yeah. that's the thing you know all of these really early inventions led to so much more you know like the microchip becoming so pretty it's in everything now yeah you yeah. know you got, you got rings with like chips in and that kind of thing now and like well bulletin boards are literally yeah. like for me, just Ravi explaining that then, it's just like the foundation of like social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, exactly. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Cybercultural so, came yeah, out exactly, of the, the yeah. BBS scene. So, yeah, rest in peace to uh, really sad losses there at the end of 2019. You know, uh, it, it really shows me why podcasts like this are important yeah. to kind of get these. And, you know, we've not managed to interview Chuck, but the Ampower did a fantastic interview with Chuck. Um, so check that one out. Oh, cool. If you send me a link, I'll make sure yep. that's in there this week's show notes. Now, the N64 is a system that we're all massive fans of around this, around this table. The Nintendo 64 legendary system. It's pretty legendary to me. It's, yeah. you know, I hold it very, very close to my heart. Really, still waiting for the N64 Mini. Well, we were saying that last year, actually. Yeah. You know? now, we we always take the pee out of Ravi because he, he. I remember an episode where Ravi was like, you know, the, the Switch is not going to be a success. <laughs> yeah, no. And how we like, I still believe it's not going to be a success. <laughs> but then me and Joe actually did say at the start last year, there's definitely going to be an N64 Mini we in did. 2019. We did, which yeah, didn't happen. It so, didn't happen, yeah. did it? No. None of us are always right. No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not even me. Uh, but I mean, you were actually a good boy. Because you got a Switch for Christmas. Yeah, I finally, finally, finally grabbed a, a Switch. Uh, I've only got one game, which is yep. Super Smash Bros. Yep. Uh, Ultimate. But I've been, oh, you I've need. Been, <laughs> oh, you need, exactly. But I've been absolutely hammering that uh, since Christmas Day. I've already got all the characters as well. If anybody wants to challenge me, give me a message. Well, there you go. Uh, but yeah, this is a really interesting piece. So hopefully this will tide us over a little bit longer. But um, there's an adapter yep. to use N64 controllers on the Switch coming out, which... Is just bizarre because I was actually reading the you know the Daily Mash the other day, right? And it was just, you know one of these taking the Mickey out of websites, and it was saying how you know historians have unearthed the N sixty four controller and wonder how people used it in the past and all this. <laughs> how many fingers did they have? You know how many fingers did these people have and stuff? So 
it, it's true. It's probably the most weird mainstream controller of all time. But yeah, there's this neat little awesome adapter now which allows you to use it on the switch so this is by hyperkin who make you know good peripherals anyway so what it is it's a little adapter that plugs into the switch dock via the usb port so yeah it sounds but you can only play it when it's docked in tv mode yeah um but then on the other end of it it has an input for a standard n64 controller so that does mean i mean at the moment there are not that many n64 games on the uh, the e-store on the switch there are a couple on there you've got doom 64s on there yeah and turok and turok 2 seeds of evil so, I mean, you haven't got that many, but I think, you know, the fact that we haven't got a mini would suggest that they're probably going to release more of them on the store. Yeah. Um, and these games, I mean, like you said, because it was such a unique controller, they're really difficult to play any other way. Yeah, it's a lot of the time, like, you know, they were designed with the controller in mind, especially first-person shooters, The only, really the only games being on there are the first-person shooters. So I guess it's going to give you that real authentic feel to, like, actually kind of go back and... You know, we mentioned Doom 64 coming out on the Switch a couple of weeks ago, actually. So yeah. it's it's something that's grabbed my attention. It's something that I'm like, oh, that might be worth grabbing when it goes onto the market. Because I don't think they're out just yet. Right. Uh, they've just kind of been announced and stuff. But it's it's interesting. And then also, it'd be pretty cool if they were, like, if they could work on Smash Bros or something. But <laughs> who knows? <laughs> were, were there any weird controllers for the N64? Like, uh non-standard ones there was the fishing there was I think there was a fishing rod and there was like a I don't know about the fishing rod actually but there was like a I've got one at home which is a a racing one and then there was also a glove like a one-handed like glove one maybe features for them will be used (laughs) yeah yeah really really bizarre uh, console well it is a bizarre console but bizarre (laughs) controller you know you're talking about the fact that some of those games are a lot harder to control did you watch um AVGN did his latest episode about Majora's Mask. Oh, yeah. Uh, have you seen it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I saw that and I thought, what? That's obviously one of the most adored games, isn't it? I yeah. can think of. And I thought, his videos are generally quite negative putting the games down. That. I yeah. thought, that's a brave one to do. And look at it, it's got so many downvotes. Yeah, yeah. But you watch a video and you can't argue with any of his arguments. Yeah. And the control mechanism and how unfair a lot of those and, games and were. You know, and then. you know what? He's gone on record for a good 10 years saying yeah. he's not played Majora's Mask. Yeah. He always says it, not played it, not played it, not played it. I need to get around to playing it. And it was really interesting and I didn't think he was I don't think I watched it quite late at night like the night it came out and I don't think he slagged it off too much and I think you're right the things he did say about it are just they're frustrating Yeah, I went back to it on the DS uh, on the 3DS about a year ago to play it when I went to Japan and I only got to like the first dungeon and I had enough and that version's quite fixed and, up I think I, I know and I like, love yeah. my nostalgia with Majora's Masks really 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 strong mm. and Going back to it, then I was like, "Yeah, I've had enough of it now." Yeah. You know, I'm gonna go back to playing Resident Evil on it because yeah. yeah. And I, even trying to get over those section blades, trying to use the analog stick on the N64 controller, and it's like you got to be so delicate with it, or yeah. you fall off the edge. You know, it's it's memories like that I think kind of go to the back of your mind when you think about yeah. retro gaming sometimes. But there you go. I mean, it is cool to be able to play those games with the original controllers. I think so. We'll keep an eye on that, and uh, put a link in our show notes to that story. Now, the 3DO is uh, another weird system from back in the day. You know, I had a sequel, the M2. Now, the M2 was an unreleased system. This was meant to be like the next big thing, but obviously after the 3DO didn't do that well, the, the project was canned in the Did end. some of the technology go into other consoles later? Or? 
Well, <laughs> if you want to know the actual <laughs> fate of it. So they made an arcade machine, I believe, oh, okay. that had some of this technology in. But I did read, I don't know how true this is, but apparently the technology in the end was used in coffee machines. Okay. So uh, apparently that was the fate of the M2. Put to use. <laughs> but you know, the Atari Jaguar ended up as like the dentist camera thing, didn't yeah. it? The 3DO M2 ended up as a coffee machine, apparently. So kind of sad fate, really. But there is a guy um, on YouTube. Um, this guy's called Anthony Bacon. Now, he lives in Chicago, and he's probably like the world's premier 3DO M2 collector. And he's trying to do, if you look at his YouTube channel, he's trying to get like all of the kind of unreleased prototypes mm. and stuff about it and kind of document them. Now, there is a game on there um, that was called D2. Now, you're familiar with this game. Yeah, so D so D came out on the, I could be a bit, could be wrong here, but yeah. D came out on the Sega Saturn. And then there was Enemy Zero as well, which I'm pretty sure is on the, uh, is on the Sega Saturn's same, same developers and stuff. And then D2 was a Dreamcast game. I'm pretty sure. So when you sent me this link, I was like, D2? I was like, I know D2. And yeah, it was 1997 they were making it for the 3DO M2. But yeah, it, it never came out. And he's got, what, like a tech demo for it? Yeah, well, it turns out this is actually quite different to the version that came out of the Dreamcast yeah. in the end in 1999. Uh, it was a Kenji Ino was the guy behind it. So mm. he originally started the development of um, D2 on the 3DO M2 hardware. Mm. And apparently it was going to be quite different. The original game would have started with the death of a pregnant Laura, her unborn son, walked back in time, and then you'd assume the role of, his, of her son, who was a teenager and trapped in a castle, apparently. That was going to be like the story of it. Yeah, because D, the original D is set in a castle, and yeah. then Enemy Zero is on a space ship i think or something like that really really strange concept games because it's like invisible enemies and stuff like that like first person elements right. and uh but then the final product for d2 was actually a bit more of a third person shooter if i remember rightly so but in the concept for this yeah you've got the guy going around with like a sword fighting in a castle it, it, it seems like the the, the, the kind of demo is not you know, amazingly well done. No. The M2 one here, there's a lot of code still on there. And uh, I'm just reading about it here. And he says, you know, to get the demo set up, um, you have to burn 15 different discs <laughs> and play 15 diverse demos. And the total file size of that is only 200 megabytes. Right. So <laughs> it's kind That's of splitting crazy. up that 200 meg into 15 discs. Well, apparently this was on the, the M2 development hardware, but Kenji Eno, apparently when the 3DO M2 was cancelled, he went absolutely ape and smashed up all the development kits that really? we used. He went furious, apparently, and then started completely from scratch on what would eventually become the Dreamcast version of the game. So there wasn't really any ways to get hold of this, but apparently this guy, he hasn't revealed his source yet, but he's been chatting to a guy who worked for the 3DO company, and he's managed to get these kind of mm. little, the last remaining files yeah, yeah. of the 3DO. How, how's he getting it working then? He must have had some kind of... Uh port or emulator yeah or i imagine there is weird, some kind like, of emulator debug kind of kit or yeah something. he must he must have got a hold of the kit or something yeah i mean it doesn't really show you much apparently it's just like a, a couple of animation loops and stuff like that but the point is you know they're saying here it is d2 running in real time on mm. the the m2 hardware and it's probably the only time you'll ever get to see that now being that he smashed up all the development systems and things this is the only thing that survives but you know cool, as we'll talk more cool about story though it yeah. is it's amazing and as we'll talk more about with kieran soon i mean it's i just love the you know kind of finding out these what could have happened kind of stories. There's so many interesting little twists and turns. So in the, if we ever went to an alternate reality, it could all be, you know, M2s. <laughs> Sega Saturn 2 came out. <laughs> you know, because that was meant to be, you know, 3DO got their own way. There wouldn't have been any other consoles for a long time. Because no. 3DO was meant to be kind of like, like, you know, a VHS player was your video. Yeah, It'd be like, you know, the, the, a console would be a 3DO. And all companies would make games for that. But it makes you wonder... 
that probably would have held back console technology a long way. So I think they're on about replacing it maybe every decade. Oh, okay. So imagine using the same console in 2003 that you used in 1993. Yeah, that's so. actually crazy when you think about it. And yeah. I would imagine everything's like digitized, real life graphics as well. Yeah, it's like, yeah, well, yeah. the FMV games that we yeah. love so much. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of good that 3DO didn't make it, isn't it, I suppose. Now, before we get into our chat this week and our retro picks, um, Ravi, you can probably help a bit on this one because I know you're an avid PC gamer. Yeah, um, I've been reading this article here about essentially how to improve graphics on old PC games. You know, if you're playing like legacy games on modern hardware, not via stuff like GOG or Steam and that kind of thing. And they're talking about a few little things you can do. Like there are apparently hacks you can use, like widescreen hacks. Yeah, so this this happens with absolutely every game. So even the older ones like, uh, oh God, Command and Conquer Red Alert, you can even put commands inside the launchers of Steam. Right. So it'd be like uh, hyphen 1080 by, you know, you're basically forcing it to go to the higher resolution that's not available in the game. You can do that on a lot of PC stuff now, but you can also add in post-processing and shading. Right. So reshade is a massive program and reshade basically was developed for the GTA scene, but it was developed from like really early GTA. So what they were doing is putting that over games and it also uh, Skyrim it got really popular on that so they put it over modern games and it rechanges all the lighting and texture but you could apply that to older games and also you can add a lot of stuff like processing effects tessellation and stuff and that's all done through um, it's built in actually on emulators so uh, PC SX2 the PlayStation 2 emulator you could run some absolutely stunning versions of PlayStation games on that. I've seen Ratchet and Clank in like 4K <laughs> with like beautiful <laughs> graphics, kind of the original PlayStation 2 version. And people are all upscaling these games. And it's really nice. It's like a kind of your own remastering, you know. Yeah, well, they're talking about text texture mod packs and stuff you can get. Yeah, exactly. Too, yeah. yeah, so there's texture mod packs. I remember having Vice City. Hmm and redoing all the roads on there with like (laughs) you know more realistic roads and then bumping up the resolution but now if you do the texture mods on like gta 5 it's just insane so on all levels of gaming it's kind of these these fan changes are improving it i think you know with these games are obviously made for like four by three crt screens yeah and you know with modern displays if you're not running like the native mode, they all go fuzzy in that. Then if you've got like a 4K and you're trying to yeah. run it in like yeah 800 by 800, it's never going to look good. But there are some great tips actually. So I'll put a link to this article on our PC Mag, how to get better graphics on old PC games in our show notes, along with everything else that we've talked about this week at theretrohour.com. Now we've got a few uh, retro picks this week as well, things that we've been looking at over Christmas. Now I found this really cool website. Now if maybe you're back to work and you're feeling a bit down in the dumps, you know, looking at Excel all day or whatever you're doing in your normal job, <laughs> there is this uh, great HTML5 Spectrum emulator. Now if you click in here, these are all sorted out by year. <laughs> And there are loads of them that go from 1982 up to games that have come out in the uh, the 2010s. I so, love that they've put like 1990X, like yeah. <laughs> the ones that came out after 89. Which wasn't worth it, it, it wasn't worth putting them in yeah. Yeah, by, by that stage, I don't think. But there's loads on here. You've got stuff like, you know, Hungry Horace, uh, Centipedes on here, uh, Gyroscope. You know, pretty much all the major Specky games, Monty on the Run. You can click them and it opens in a really compatible HTML5 emulator on your web browser, complete with sound effects and everything and you just play them straight away it's so powerful isn't it html5 you can run so many systems like from the stuff that we've seen on archive.org where you can just load up an ms dos game to this 
whole kind of spectrum running. It's amazing. Yeah, the, the power of the web. So if you want to play specy games on your computer with uh, no hassle, no loading times or anything, either come straight on. Um, you'll find that in our show notes this week. You've been, <laughs> you've been playing games in a nice way. Yeah, so this is a, a, an interesting new kind of craze that I've been seeing, which has been coming from speedrunners. And uh, this channel's called Dark Viper AU. And it's kind of playing games as a pacifist. Right. So trying to not do any kills, um, you know, completing GTA Five or it could be any title. You know, you've seen it for other titles. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's completing it without any kills. And what they'll try and do is they'll try and, like, get the NCPs to fight each other. And they'll do that by driving cars near them to making them scared and jump so they change their programming <laughs> and it's just fascinating seeing these guys kind of playing these games working out where the trigger tiles are and kind of hacking it like live but you know it's hilarious it takes about five hours for them to get through one i was one gonna say does it take longer yeah. yeah i thought it might <laughs> hasn't the guy got like ninety thousand hours or something it's, it's, like it's doing a crazy it. amount <laughs> it's crazy yeah but i think this is going to be a new a new trend playing violent games as a pacifist and uh, <laughs> fantastic <laughs> yeah and tell us about the uh, remix of the save rooms then Joe. yeah so i've been listening to i'm a big fan of like synthwave and darkwave music um you know that real like 80s vibe and you there it is yeah there we go there we go so this is a guy called uh mono memory who's remixed resident evil one to seven well resident evil one two three four and seven and code veronica and zero he's remixed the um the save room music and released an eight track album i thought it sounded familiar and that's you know, the save music from uh, Resident Evil Zero. And I just yeah. think it's a fantastic album. It did actually come out a couple of months ago, but he's just released it on uh, cassette and vinyl. It has unfortunately already sold out. And my friend only showed it me this morning. Right. And I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Uh, but you can check it out on Spotify and YouTube and everything. Just a, a wicked album. And I didn't want to do a YouTuber like I always did. So if you're into that like 80s synth music, check it out. Mono memory. Yes, even though the vinyl and the cassettes, you can get digital copies of it. Yeah, it's digital yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah so. so 19 quid by the looks of it. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, really good, actually. If you want to find out more about that, I'll put that and everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Well, let's get into this week's guest then, our first one of 2020, talking about stuff like Atari systems from back in the day, a bit of Spectrum love and the consoles that could have been as well. This week's special guest is Kieran Hawkins. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and let's welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we were looking before on Amazon. This guy has actually written 43 books, we estimate, in less than a decade now. He's also written for titles like Retro Gamer magazine, got a brilliant YouTube channel, Laird's Lair. Let's get on our guest this week. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, Kieran Hawkin. Hello, great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here as well. Now, um, I did say then over 43 books. How have you managed that in under a decade? Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing is that actually a few years ago, uh, Darren Jones at Retro Gamer nicked, nicknamed me the machine because I could turn around stuff really, really quickly. There have been times where he needed an article at like last minute and I could turn it around in like 24 hours. Wow. So I think I'm just a very quick writer, very quick typer. But also a lot of the, the early books that I actually did, the early A to Z books, I kind of had all mostly written, but sitting on my computer. Um, and so a lot, of the, a lot of the earlier ones, it was just a case of like putting that content together to be published. But the more recent ones I've done have pretty much been written from scratch. So they've taken a little bit longer. But I think that's one reason why I got off to a really 
quick start because a lot of the content had actually already been written. Well, we're always bumping into you at gaming events and stuff like that, and you're always telling us about fantastic systems and you produce a lot of videos about really rare systems. I was wondering what kind of different machines did you have when you were growing up and how did they kind of influence you? My first computer was a Spectrum, which I got uh, got a Spectrum Plus 2 for Christmas in 1987, which I had to share with my younger brother and my older sister. So it was like a family computer, you know, to help with schoolwork. <laughs> yeah, that, that old story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd been playing on them for a long time before that because actually I got given a, a 48K about six months before that rubber key, but could never get it to work properly. Tried replacing various things on it and could never get it to actually work properly. But I played on family and friends' computers a long time before that, mostly Spectrums. So it, it took a while to persuade my parents that a computer was worth the investment. But yeah, then. Um, about a year after that, I, I picked up an Atari 2600 Junior, which again was a Christmas present. Uh, then I went uh, Atari ST, then Lynx, the quick succession, I think both around 1990. Then Mega Drive, Jaguar, Saturn. Wow. That would be my, my timeline. Yeah, and the Saturn was the last console I bought it's kind of growing up, if you know what I mean. I kind of went away from gaming for quite a while after after the Saturn. So, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, and I think you and I were quite similar in that regard, that, you know, I was really into gaming until I kind of hit, like, my mid-teens, I think it probably was, and I kind of got into, like, you know, other things in life come along, like, you know, alcohol yeah. and females and that kind of thing. I mean, were you kind of the same? Did you have a break and then rediscover it? How, how did that kind of work? Yeah, well, I, I kind of my social life kind of took over. I had quite a busy social life, and that kind of took over things. And I was, I was gaming less and going out a lot more and... Uh, working a lot as well I, I used you know i worked in retail so i was always working insane hours and um and then i went to live abroad i lived in tenerife for two and a half years and i was running a bar out there and then when i came back from tenerife in 2003 i kind of got a flat on my own again i hadn't lived on my own for a long 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 time and i got a flat living on my own and then it was kind of like well what can i do with my time now you know kind of thing hmm. I got a PC and the internet as well at around that time and then started seeing that retro gaming was actually a thing that, you know, there was people who were into it and, and liked it. I can't remember how I came across that in the first place. I think I was just looking up things that I liked when I was younger, sort of nostalgic things, I suppose. Oh no, I'll tell you what it was actually. It was because my mum found a boxes of some of my old stuff in her garage. She found my ST and my 2600 in her garage. Well, she kept them all. Yeah, she had. Yeah, yeah right. she had those. Yeah, they were in her garage. I don't even know how they ended up with my mum, because my parents got divorced when I was thirteen, and I actually lived with my dad. Mm. So I'm still not 100 percent sure how a lot of my stuff ended up with my mum. But, um, but yeah, she found it. And they gave it to me, and that that yeah, that's what kicked it off. I thought, oh, what about other things, you know? And then I just started buying systems that I loved that I didn't have. So like, I bought a Spectrum again, and um, I still had my Lynx. I took my Lynx to Tenerife with me. And I took my Jaguar to Tenerife with me, so I still had both of those. And then I started buying up a few systems that I was interested in that I'd never owned. For example, an Atari 7800. I bought one of those um, fairly early on when I started collecting, I think. And then I kind of started finding out there was expos and things like that, and it just kind of all blew up from there, really. Well, I guess also it was a complete change because before you'd maybe have a narrow view or a view that would be limited to like what your peers had what was available in the shops. But then 
you kind of came back into the retro scene when the internet was coming out, there was more information. So were you like discovering new machines you'd never heard of and new companies? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've picked up a lot of consoles that I never got to play, you know, when I was younger. I mean, I think one of the best examples is actually the Atari 8-bit computer because I remember seeing them when I was younger. I remember seeing the games in the shops and I remember seeing the computers, but I never knew anyone who owned one. And I picked one up eventually out of curiosity because I'm a massive Atari fan, as, as most people know. And, you know, it kind of felt like I had to have it in my collection. And then I discovered that I it really clipped me. I loved it. I loved the games. I loved everything about it. And that's now one of my favorite systems. But it wasn't one I owned as a as a kid. And I think the Vetrix would be another yeah, Ravi's with you there. He loves the Vectrix. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but those Atari 8-bit computers as well, I mean, you're right. I didn't really know anyone that owned them either, I don't think, back in the day. I got the impression they were always more popular in America, but they were, they were very powerful home computers, weren't they? Oh, extremely, yeah. I mean, considering, you know, it came out in 1979, and you look at some of the stuff that people have done with it, especially the homebrewers, um, you know, the, like the conversion of Space Harrier, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. You know, you can't believe that's running on a computer from the 70s, you know? You're right about that as well, Dan, um, them being in America. Because yeah. when I went over, there were 400s and 800s everywhere. They were like as common as C64s. Yeah, really good machines. So they were kind of like J minor, weren't they? Like they kind of pre-runs to the Amiga in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the same design team. They did the 2600, then the Atari 8-bit, and then the Amiga was supposed to be an evolution of that, of that hardware. Yeah. Well, you don't need to convince me. Now, the Jaguar is a machine that I absolutely love as well. And we've talked about, you know, the virtues of the Jag when we've met up in the past, Kieran. But I mean, for people that might not have much love for the system or know much about it, what's the appeal of the Atari Jaguar for you then? Why do you like the system? Well, I pre-ordered one before it even came out because I was so excited about it. And uh, I can remember, you know, ringing up games like almost every day to say, you know, is it, is it in yet? Is it in yet? Is it in yet? Because I was so excited about, you know, this this next generation system that was going to offer you know 3d graphics and photorealistic images and stuff like this and i I remember buying a few of the american magazines like die hard game fan and egm and seeing the previews in that first before it's previewed in the the mags over here and um just everything i saw about it i just kept getting more and more and more excited and then obviously it ended up falling flat on its face but i just think it's such a shame because it could have been so much more than it was and then in, in recent years where I've got into the writing and I've got in contact with, you know, all these people who worked on it and worked on the games for it and found out the challenges they faced and, you know, what they thought of it. And it, it becomes even more of an enigma because you think, oh, my God, you know, the Jaguar could have been something really special if, um, you know, the, the cards had fallen right. And more than any other system I can think of, probably the Jaguar was hit by so much bad luck. It's ridiculous. And I think a lot of people don't realise how much bad luck beset the Jaguar, you know, and and really cost it. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you there. I think stuff like, you know, Jaguar VR, which was mm-hmm. so ahead of its time, but also the way that people would program it. So, you know, kind of it would be a bit easier just to use the one CPU instead of, like, doing the full addressing. Uh, you yeah. know, it adds so much potential there. I, I'd argue, you know, a lot more potential than the Amiga CD32 or other CD systems we saw later on. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, there was some ways that it was more powerful than the PlayStation and the Saturn were. Certainly not in the 3D area, but it was it was a monster at 2D. It, it could beat both in, you know, in in in, in respects of 2D and colours on screen and sprites and things like that. You know, it was a it was a really powerful console. 
You actually used to organise an Atari Jaguar show. I did, yeah. I kind of took it over. It was someone else's show. It was a guy, it was a guy called Nick Harlow who used to run a, a company called 1632 Systems, which um, started off as actually like a retail shop. They were an actual shop, and then he went on to online. And uh, he was probably one of the biggest stockists of Atari stuff in the UK. When um, Atari closed down, he took a lot of their stock. And he actually took he actually held the um, distribution rights for a lot of the Vulcan software. After Atari abandoned the Vulcan, he took it over. And it was him who started the shows. I think as a sort of sideline to kind of selling his stuff online, he set up these shows, Jagfest UK shows. And uh, then he ha- fell into poor health. And uh, other people were running it on and off. And then no one wanted to do it. And so I said, well, I'll take it on then. So I did two of them. I did 2009 and 2010. And then um, after that, no no one wanted to do it anymore. I had some health problems of my own. I, I wasn't up to doing another one. And, uh, yeah, no one else wanted to take it over, so it kind of died. There's still a European Jagfest show in Germany. I think the French one died out as well. But, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was going to say, I've seen videos online of some more recent ones. Yeah, and they always look quite well attended as well. And I think you know, there's some really, really hardcore fans of the Jaguar out there. Yeah, I think, I, mean, I think we used to get sort of about 50 to 100 people mm um over the weekend it was yes it was a small a small event but you know really sort of hardcore love for the uh, all atari systems though it was called jagfest we always had a full spread of atari systems and a few other things as well and we had some really cool people attend over the years as well come to the shows and brought you know some quite rare kit and prototypes and things like that as well well i think the jag community has always been amazing and they've kind of kept that system going a bit i remember um seeing a Jaguar Monthly on CD-ROM in 1994. It was a kind of fan magazine that was uh, yeah yeah that was created, and that continued even after the Jag wasn't going. And you know, it's it's interesting because you look at stuff like the ST as well, and that seems like a very kind of British thing as well. And to me, the Jag seemed a bit British as well, even though it's totally American, isn't it? No, the community. It's, yeah, yeah. It sold better in Europe than it did in the US. Um, so that's partly, I think, part of it. The Atari name was a lot stronger in Europe than it was in the US at that time. And also the majority of the games were developed in Europe as well. And obviously, of course, the Jaguar itself was designed in the UK. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Flair Technology, ex-Sinclair engineers. Yeah, and I think you saw like you know people like Jeff Minter really made that system sing as well, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people who worked in that like, rebellion, Jeff Minter, attention to detail, you know, all, all British developers. And then they were the main guys behind... The best games eclipse who did iron soldier were german you know so a lot of the best de- developers were, were, were european well we need to talk about obviously these um incredible books that you've worked on also magazines as well i mean it's kind of getting to your kind of background on that what magazines did you used to read religiously back in the day were there any that you pick up like every single month your sinclair yeah would be the, the first one that was my i loved your sinclair everyone talks about crash i far preferred your sinclair because i liked the humor in your Sinclair, that was what that's what drew me into that. Their, their reviews were good, and I quite often re- agreed with them. But they also added in a lot of humour, so I loved that. I loved ST format when I had an ST. That was my favourite ST magazine. A bit more serious, but it always had good cover discs as well. ST format, Game Zone. When I got into the link, they always gave the links good coverage. I liked CMVG. That was another one I, I loved. Used to buy most of the time. Um, official Sega Saturn magazine. They're the ones, I think, all the ones that stick in my mind the most. It was so easy to spend all your money on mags back then, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, I'm interested that there was even a official Sega Saturn magazine because I didn't see that many Saturns in the UK when they originally came out. I remember seeing a lot of Dreamcasts, but um, was there much of a Saturn scene? Supposedly, I mean, I only found this out recently, and I, I, I'd like to look into it more, possibly for video. But I read that apparently in the first year, the Saturn outsold the PlayStation in the UK. Oh, wow. Which I can quite believe yeah. because the Mega Drive was so popular. So I, I can quite believe that, that, that that's possible, that it, it did outsell it. But obviously, they weren't releasing enough games and stuff like that. But it's definitely something I'd like to look into more. But, I, you know, I chose to get a Saturn. When the, you know, like the Jaguar was on the way out, I, I changed to a Saturn. And um, I knew quite a few other people who had a Saturn as well. And I think between me and my friends, it was probably about a 50-50 split between Saturn and PlayStation. So it's, in a way, it's funny how it turned out, do you know what I mean, in that respect. Oh, yeah. And I, I was wondering, do you have, like, a background in writing or journalism? Because your research for a lot of this stuff is absolutely fantastic, and you kind of find some of these really obscure consoles that, you know, we're pretty geeky and we haven't heard about <laughs> ourselves. So. It actually started off because I was part of a, a website and um, forum online um, it's not no longer around anymore that was called Jaguar Sector 2 that I've kind of brought back now as a Facebook group called Jaguar Sector 3 but the Jaguar Sector 2 site they had like a wiki kind of section that had like game reviews and stuff like that and guides and things like that in it and uh, the guy who ran that kind of part of the forum he used to said he always really enjoyed reading my posts on the forum and he liked my opinions and stuff like that and he said if you thought about writing game reviews and I said, yeah, because actually when I was at school, for a school project, me and one of my friends made a Spectrum magazine and then ran off loads of copies on the photocopy in the library <laughs> and sold them for like 50p in the playground. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of already in my head. And then I wrote for this site for a while and then I got approached to write for Atari user magazine because a guy was bringing that back. So I started writing for them. Just that was all, you know, in my spare time doing it for free, you know, never made any money or anything out of it. And uh, it was that writing for them that kind of got me the job with Retro Gamer because they were looking for somebody to write Atari specific articles. Somebody suggested me to Darren and then Darren approached me, asked me to send him some of my stuff that I'd written for Atari user. He liked it. And then um, I wrote an Atari ST article for Retro Gamer. And um, they really liked it. It went down really well. So then they offered me, you know, freelance, regular freelance work. I mean, talking about the systems that you've got, you mentioned before how you got back into it and then um, probably like, you know, we all did, that dangerous discovery that is eBay. And yeah. uh, you suddenly want to pick everything up. I mean, how big is your system collection? And um, tell us some of the highlights of your collection then. A lot smaller than it was. At one point, I would probably say I probably had one of the biggest in the UK. Because I certainly didn't know many, you know, even going to the expos, I didn't really know anyone who had a bigger collection than me. When I got married um, quite a few years ago, and I moved in with my wife, now wife, obviously, I started downsizing it massively because I just didn't have the room. It was all in storage. And I wasn't using it, and I decided that I wanted to keep my collection more focused on what I wanted to keep. So I got rid of loads of stuff. And now what I have is, and I wouldn't want to get rid of any more, but now I have all the Atari systems, I have a complete 7800 collection, complete Jaguar and Jaguar CD. Atari 2600, I have over 300 games, so it's not complete, but it's, it's pretty substantial. Complete Atari Lynx collection, so I kept all of those. A decent Atari 8-bit collection, 
that's pretty much i think it's pretty much all atari actually i've got a decent vectrix and vectrix collection that's probably one of the few that i've got that's not atari oh and i've actually got a massive philips cdi collection believe it or not nice <laughs> I, I saw dan's eyebrows go up yeah. when you mentioned that <laughs> i've started collecting for it in recent years because i mean usually i i find them in random places i think we went to um we're like some pawn shop in Leeds, and we walked in. The, the guy there must have had about thirty CDI titles for about four quid each. So I just bought them all up, and that kind of started me on the on the collection trail for the CDI. Yeah, it's an interesting system. And mm. I actually picked up all my collection of three people, which was pretty mad. I got the CDI back in the days when you could still get stuff on eBay by using spelling mistakes. Right. <laughs> so I spelled Phillips with two L's. Commodore, I used to do. Commodore, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I found one with, I think it had over 100 discs with it, and I got it for 25 quid. That's not bad. <laughs> that is really good. And then I found this, there's this, there's this lot going for about of about 50 discs on um, eBay, and I won that, and then the woman messaged me and said, I didn't think these would sell, and I won it for a tenner as well. I didn't think these would sell. Um, if you send me another tenner, I'll send you about another 50-odd discs that I've got in my loft. <laughs> So another 150 discs arrived from this woman. And then there was a few other titles that I wanted. I think stuff like the Zeldas, you know, that I just didn't have, which I was really intrigued in getting them. And then I found an eBay seller who had pretty much all the ones I wanted, and I just ordered them all in one go. Oh, nice. So, yeah, so pretty much three people supplied my entire CDI collection. (laughs) And there's there's not many golden gems on the CDI, but I think I was playing a game called Voyeur, I think, the other week, which is like really weird. Um, It sounds weird. Yeah, Google it if you haven't heard of it. You essentially play a guy who's in a hotel room and he kind (laughs) of has binoculars and spies on like a family across the way, and that's really odd. But it's just a massive pervert. It is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, but I think because they're those gaming experiences that you don't get on any other platform, I think that's one thing that appeals to me about the CDI. Yeah, it's got some really interesting titles. Uh, My favorite game, actually, which I always recommend to people on the CDI, is a game called Steel Machine, and it's basically a ripoff of Iridium. And it's amazing. Just don't play it with a remote control. Yeah, you know, you need a joypad. <laughs> yeah, you've got to have a joypad. I've got a joypad with my CDI, which is good. I was wondering, have you seen a kind of resurgence in the retro scene since you started kind of publishing your books? But also, I've noticed your YouTube channel seems to be uh, growing at a very good rate at the moment. So you, you must have seen some kind of resurgence. The thing about retro gaming, I think you guys will probably agree, is it's become more mainstream over the past few years. Going back... You know, a few more years. I think it was still kind of seen as a kind of really geeky niche thing. Oh, you like retro gaming? <laughs> you know, um, you must be a right nerd or whatever. You know. Whereas now, I think it's like, oh yeah, yeah, retro games. Retro games are cool. You know, because retro games are getting released on the Switch, and retro games are getting released on Xbox One. You know, and um, people are walking around everywhere with Atari T-shirts on. Do you know what I mean? I think it's become. I think retro games become more accepted now. And obviously, with it being more accepted, it's 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 grown even more, and hence why, you know, the prices of games and stuff have, have gone through the roof on you know, on eBay and stuff like that. And uh, the the books, you know, it seems like there's a, almost like a new retro gaming book coming out every single week at the moment. It's crazy. And I think as well the fact that you can walk into game or whatever, and you, you get all these mini consoles and things that are around at the moment too. Which, you know, I remember my mum when, you know, the 64 Mini came out. She gave me a ring. She's like, um, that, that thing you had as a kid, that, that Commodore 64, where you can buy them again now. They're out again. And it's when, like, you know, my mum, it's on her consciousness. It's like, that's when you know it's become mainstream. Yeah, that's when you know. Yeah, I think that's, I, yeah, I think, like you say, I think the Minis have, have been a big, a big part of it as well. I think they've, 
definitely helped push it into the mainstream as well. Have you experienced much of the retro scene outside of the UK, um, other events kind of around the world? I haven't been to any events abroad, um, although I've meant to a few times, but uh, other things have got in the way. They have, a re- they have a really big event in Poland every year called City Venture, and um, I get invited to that pretty much every year, but the timing's really bad because it's always right before Christmas, end of November, beginning of December, and it's just all, all, when it comes around, it's always like, nope, can't afford it, which is really annoying because I can get direct flights from Luton, which is really close to where I live, and, you know, and um, it'd be nice to, to actually go one year. <laughs> It's it's kind of thing a bucket list thing. I think I would like to go to one. I think the fact that there are so many shows as well. I mean, we're, we're already planning next year. I think we've already got about six booked in. Seven, <laughs> yeah, seven now. <laughs> but yeah, it's like there's so many of them on now. And again, I think that's testament to how mainstream retro gaming's become, isn't it? And and that energy is around the world as well. When yeah. you go to these other events, you'll be like, "What? It's wow! People are excited!" You know? Oh, definitely. I mean, I've written for American magazines. I've written. Um, for German magazines, French as well. I've appeared in French magazine and Spanish. Hmm. So m- some of my, my my articles from Retro Gamer have been appeared in the other editions, like the Spanish edition and the German edition. I've had loads in the German edition, funnily enough, more than any other. And I, a few years back, I got asked to write some a couple of articles for a German magazine. And I literally sent them to them in English, and they translated the whole article into German. So the articles never even ever appeared in English. I, I was wondering, kind of, is is there a Amstrad scene out there, and is that focused more in kind of Europe because that was the direction that they went rather than the Americas? Yeah, Amstrad was massive in France. I know, I know, I know that. Um, really, really big in France because when I did the my first Amstrad A to Z Kindle book, literally I was getting inundated with. Um, French people asking if there'd be a French edition available, and I haven't had that with any other book. You know, the the you know begging for an, you know a, a foreign language version. You know, and um, I talked to my publisher that perhaps when we do the print version next year of the Amstrad book, we might do a French language version as well. Well, you've contributed to a lot of other books as well. I mean, one that I know you did was the history of the Oliver Twins book. I mean, were you big fans of the Olivers back in the day and any other kind of oh, developers yeah. you looked up to back then? I bought tons of Codemasters games <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, I was really into my budget games, yeah. So when Chris asked me to do the, um, the Oliver Twins book, that was really, really good. I got to go for curry with them and stuff like that when we were planning out the book and we did the the um, kind of event to launch it and stuff like that. It was, yeah, that was kind of surreal in a way. Well, he also did a title called A Homebrew Heroes. Um, tell us a bit about that and where that idea came from. That was the first book I did. Mm. Um, yeah, and that was um, a kind of team effort with Retro Video Gamer Forum. There was loads of us involved. I kind of did the editing and I wrote a, a little bit more than probably anyone else on the on the book. But there was lots of people involved. I think there was about seven or eight of us in total kind of contributed to it. And we were hoping to... Um, turn it into a print book it only ended up being a pdf and there was a company that were actually going to turn it into a print book and they were really interested in doing it and then that company went bust which was a bit of a shame <laughs> kind of bad timing but that was really because i'd around that time discovered you know the whole homebrew scene which was kind of only just really starting up then it wasn't big like it is now you know where now we've got actual publishers you know who literally just do homebrew stuff you know like pico and um Cytronic and there's loads of names escaping me at the moment, but yeah, um, you know, there's kind of loads of these people now just focusing on on publishing homebrew games. It's mad. 
Well, we talked about the links before briefly, and um, obviously touching on homebrew as well. I saw on your YouTube channel you actually covered the uh, Mortal Kombat port for the Atari Lynx, which looked really impressive. I mean, do you think the Lynx is kind of an underrated platform? And uh, what, what do you think of like titles like that coming to it? The Lynx is kind of strange because I think most people or anyone who's experienced the Lynx, who's used it and played on it, knows that it's it's an incredible machine, amazing hardware. I think personally, the Lynx is as close to a perfect hardware design as has ever been in terms of a console. You know, because I think they took everything that their you know designers had learned with the Amiga, and they kind of just tweaked it a little bit. So I think they you know they they'd done so many systems by that point. I think that's why the Lynx turned out so well, and it's a shame it didn't have more success because I think it should have been more successful than it was. If you haven't experienced the Lynx, you might be like, oh, you know, it's, it's an Atari machine, you know, okay. And you might, you know, not expect it to be to be what it is. Um, but, yeah, so I think in, in some, I think the people who know don't underrate it, but anyone who's never experienced it does, if, you, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, I remember seeing it as a kid and I, I couldn't understand, you know, I didn't have a Lynx because, you know, we, we hadn't just gotten a Amiga and I couldn't afford one. Um, but I, I never could understand why anyone would pick a Game Boy over the Lynx when you could have these, you know, full colour graphics and everything. It didn't ever make sense to me because it looks so exactly. much better, yeah. Tetris done. <laughs> <laughs> that was it, wasn't it, I guess, yeah. I think the battery life was, yeah. a, was a huge part of it. Um, I also think it's a shame that they didn't have the Lynx 2 to start with rather than the Lynx 1 because um, it's smaller size and a better battery life. I think the Lynx's biggest problem was the software support, though. I still think that was the biggest nail in its coffin. Yeah, stuff like Mortal Kombat had come out back then. It might have been different. Yeah, I mean, Mortal Kombat 2 was meant to come out on the Lynx, and it never did. So another thing I've noticed on your channel, I mentioned earlier, that you're you're covering kind of systems and add-ons that we haven't really heard of before, like the Atari 7800 LaserDisc add-on. I'd never even known that they were going to do a LaserDisc. And the STCD as well, there seems to be all these strange kind of CDs planned add-ons for the future. How do you find out about them? Um, a lot of it is memories, actually, um, of remembering seeing things in magazines. I mean, I was chatting to Dan about the STCD thing recently, and you know, he said it was really weird time because he, he was reading it in the magazine. Yeah, it was crazy. You know? <laughs> and I had these vague memories of reading about it in ST format. And a lot of my videos have come from these memories that I have of reading things in magazines over the years. I have a an incredibly almost photographic memory at times. And um, so I remember a lot of these articles so well. And some a lot of my videos have come from these memories of uh, I've had of seeing things over the years that probably a lot of people have completely forgotten about. Oh, yeah. And I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole on the Internet, you know, and um, started finding stuff all over the place. Uh, the, the the piece that you did before the Amiga, the story, the 16-bit uh, Commodore 900, yeah. that, that was insane. As an Amiga fan, I'm like, where is this from? Yeah, I mean, that one came from just um, chance reading about something. I can't remember where it was, but I, I saw it mentioned by somebody somewhere. And I thought, what's that? So obviously then I Googled it, and then I ended up down the rabbit hole, and then I was like, this is going to be a video. So sometimes it comes from just somebody mentioning something on the internet or you know, mentioned in passing, and I, I'm intrigued and, and go and find out more. I mean, the, the story of videos, a lot of that came from when I wanted to start taking YouTube seriously, which was roughly about a year ago now, actually. It was last January when I started doing these videos. 
and um and it was actually dj slope that gave me the kick up the ass to do these because i've been writing videos for other people and i've just done the vega you know the vega plus documentary with him yeah and he said to me why are you writing this stuff for other people because i was writing for him and larry and he said why are you writing this stuff for other people when you can write it for yourself you've got the skills you've got the knowledge just go and do it have a bit more confidence in yourself and go and do it um but then it was like well what am i going to make because the youtube scene is so crowded and everyone's doing these you know the same thing and um and something stuck with me actually that Stuart ashen had said to me when we've been chatting and he'd said you know he said you need to find your niche and stick to it but he said it needs to be something you're passionate about passionate about yourself um you know because that will show through and I've always been really interested in, th in in the hardware and games and stuff that didn't come out. So that's always been a really big interest of mine, the unreleased stuff, you know, the what ifs. And I thought I'd love to make documentaries, but I thought there's a lot of other people making documentaries, but a lot of the stuff that people are making stuff, people like nostalgia nerd, you know, and Kim justice who are good friends of mine, but their stuff is very long, sometimes an hour, an hour and a half. And I thought people nowadays have a very short attention span. And what, if I could cram a documentary into 10, 15 minutes. And that's kind of where that whole idea came from to start doing these things. But I also wanted to do, obviously cover things that nobody had covered before. And there are some stuff in your, you know, stories on your channel that, yeah, I, like Ravi said, I'd never heard of. And, you know, our co-host Joe, we, we were talking about your channel last week. He, was, he watched the video that you did about the, um, the story of the, the Sega Saturn 2. I mean, for people yeah. that might not have seen that video, just kind of summarise a bit about that story then to give people a bit of a flavour. I saw someone mention it on Facebook. That was one of the, the, the chance mentionings. It was actually in a Sega group on Facebook. And someone had literally said about, um, oh, it's a shame the Sega Saturn 2 never came out because I think it would have fixed a lot of the issues, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just a general Saturn talk. And I was like, Sega Saturn 2. And then I had the memory of, the, the prototype being on a few of the websites a few years ago, and they were like, oh, we found this Saturn II prototype. So then I started obviously Googling, and then I, I discovered that, you know, the Saturn II was going to be quite different in the fact that, you know, it would have come with a built-in modem for online play. It was cost-reduced. They would have been able to bring the, the, the cost of the unit obviously down a bit. It had a different design, and, and Sega stuff always does well, so... You know, that was a kind of, yes, this is videos getting done like right now kind of thing, you know. Another one as well, the Action 52. Tell us a bit about that system then. What was that meant to be? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd remembered seeing the weird image for it. And then actually I was Googling unreleased consoles and found like some list article that someone had done and that was on it. And then um, when I started doing some more research, I found out that a few of the Action 52 guys have actually spoken about it, mostly to like US people. And then discovered this whole mad story about how the Action 52 came about. So I did the Action 52, the story of the game first. Um, and that was really interesting how it was developed on Atari STs, believe it or not. Mm. So that really piqued my interest, obviously, that the Atari ST had this integral role in the Action 52. And that was a weird and, system that had like loads of controllers and stuff. You could like loads of different methods you could control it with. And... Yeah, and then they decided, oh, yeah, we, why don't we, we'll just make our own console that can just play all games. That, that was, was the whole idea that had all these weird controller add-ons and you'd be able to plug different adapters in to play like Mega Drive games, SNES games, you know, Game Gear and everything like this. And it was it, it's, it's a really strange looking thing. And apparently it appeared at the CES show. There's no footage of it at the CES show, which is a shame. It's just like a couple of photos. 
But it would have been interesting. I'd love to find out if at that CES show you could actually play it and it was working, but there doesn't seem to be any info as to whether it was actually playable or not because it's a really strange beast. And one that we were talking about before we started recording, you mentioned that you uh, you did a video about the Intellivision 3 that was like one of your most popular videos, which is a system I, I think I missed that vid. I've never even heard of it. What's what's kind of the background on the Intellivision 3? Yeah, so that, that was one that I kind of already knew about. So it was it was kind of one of my ones on my list that I was going to do. And then um, that was actually more I dug into it, actually, the, the, the more and more interesting it got because it was going to be quite a big upgrade on the original Intellivision. And they actually planned out an Intellivision 3 and an Intellivision 4. And they kind of had this whole timeline planned out about where the Intellivision was going to go, which I think is really, really fascinating that they kind of saw so far into the future about where this, you know, it was all going to go. And then obviously the video game crash just brought it all to a halt. And then another company bought them. Well, it was like a management buyout kind of thing to keep the company going. And they intended to do do it and follow that timeline. But, you know, they kind of ended up falling by the wayside as well because they didn't really have the money to compete with Nintendo and stuff. So it never really, really, really went anywhere. But it's kind of, I say, the interesting thing is this whole timeline into the future that they had planned. Talking of the kind of timeline in the future as well, I've always thought Sega Dreamcast was massively ahead of its time. Uh, Tell us about the Sega Dreamcast pace box. Yeah, that was... um, I saw mentioned, I think it was in the Dreamcast Junkyard group on Facebook, I saw it mentioned, someone talking about it. And it was developed all in the UK. It was Pace Technology who made boxes for Sky, wanted to combine gaming into Sky boxes. And they thought that the easiest way to do that would literally just be to shove a games console into the box. So they approached Sega, because the Dreamcast was quite small, they thought it would be the best fit. So they kind of approached Sega about doing it, and they developed this whole you know, combo box that had a Dreamcast built into a, you know, a set-top Skybox. And uh, it was all ready to go pretty much until it was Sega pulling the plug on the Dreamcast that had the knock-on effect that they cancelled this this base box as well, as it was called. But I, I'm not sure it would have worked, although it was a kind of exciting product, because I don't think at the time we were ready for something like that, because downloading games over dial-up, I think, would have been pretty painful at that time. <laughs> And there's so many attempts to try to get gaming, like, you know, combined with television, like the Nuon as well, you know, that was built into the DVD players. It was a similar kind of time, wasn't it? Yeah, Nuon's, Nuon, I think, is a really interesting story because obviously it's a lot of the ex-Jaguar engineers worked on Nuon. Mm. It's kind of Nuon was a spiritual successor to the Jaguar and Jeff Minter worked on it and stuff like that as well. But yeah, they, they, they were a victim of the PS2. <laughs> and Sky own the rights to Sinclair and um, Amstrad, don't they? So, like, yeah, Comcast, why, why don't they just Comcast, use that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Imagine downloading Specky games on your Skybox. Oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> well, they, they, they did the um, Amstrad email a phone, didn't they? That had Spectrum games built into it. Yeah, I remember that. That was quite random, wasn't it? <laughs> I've yeah. yeah, I see them at cattle markets yeah. and uh, <laughs> car boot sales, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a little teaser of kind of the stuff people can expect in your channel. It's Laird's Lair. What, what, what's, the, what's the reason behind the name? I've always wondered where, where did that came from. When I was kind of, you're kind of looking for online handles, uh, at the time I've been doing a lot of research into my, my family and my mum my, my was actually adopted, but her real family um, are from Scotland. She was born in Scotland and they're actually direct descendants of James II of Scotland. Oh, wow. And one of my mum's cousins has a title. He's the Laird of Forsyth. Ah, nice. So that's where that came from. <laughs> so, yeah, that 
because I was researching it at the time and I loved that, the Laird, and I thought, I really like that. It just kind of stuck in my brain. And so it just kind of, I used it online and then it kind of it kept. And then when I was looking for a YouTube name, my channel was actually originally called Atari User TV. And then um, once I decided I was going to cover more than Atari, I needed another name. And I thought, well, Laird's Lair sounds nice. And it kind of stuck. Yeah, it definitely stands out more. You know, it reminds me <laughs> of like um, the old letter sections they used to have in magazines like Tales from the Crypt and I mean you do cover a lot on your channel as well I mean a video that you know no, we won't give too many spoilers but um, you did actually post a video this week all about the uh, the new 64 um, the Maxi not one to do you have too many spoilers but are, are you a fan of it then? Oh yeah I was very impressed I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not a Commodore guy so I try to be impartial um, I was you know Spectrum and Atari you know um, but yeah I, I thought it was really really good um, a big improvement on the Mini in many ways. Um, I think it fixed a lot of the issues, and I think uh, people who had issues with the Mini will probably find that the the full size one is what they you know what they were looking for in the first place, kind of thing. And I saw a pretty cool hack that somebody did on it, where they basically took out the actual main board, and you could just put anything in there and use it with the keyboard interface. So like oh, uh, yeah. Raspberry Pi, whatever you want. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, the case is pretty much empty. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm thinking of getting one of those FPGA arcades and putting it inside the uh, C64. I think we'll be seeing a lot of a lot of different mods for it coming up. How many minis do you reckon you could fit inside that? <laughs> <laughs> what, Maxi? Be quite a lot, actually, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Have an auto-switcher. <laughs> that would be cool. Well, I mean, as we go into 2020, um, obviously now we're into 2020 when this show comes out, You've uh, got a lot going on at the moment as well, Kieran. Let's talk about your uh, the latest book, the Atari 8-Bit Compendium. Tell us a bit about this then and what people can expect from it. So, yeah, I've just done I've done three print books now, which are like compilations of my Kindle books, but with extra stuff added. So the Atari 8-Bit Compendium was the latest one of those that I did. So that kind of tweaked the formula. I've done the ZX Spectrum Compendium and I've done the Atari 2600 Compendium. And they were just reviews mainly in those books. And then everyone said it would be cool to have interviews as well. So I took that on board and the Atari 8-bit compendium now has interviews on it as well, in, in it as well. And so that format will be staying for my future future books as well. They'll, they'll have the interviews in as well. And I've got a Commodore 64 one, which will be out any time now, really, along the same same format. I was hoping to have it out for Christmas, but unfortunately stuff got in the way, so it should be out in January. Who have you spoken to in the book then? Who have you interviewed? In the Commodore 64 one. Um, so the thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm using old interviews because all the years that I've been writing for Retro Gamer, I've built up this huge stack of interviews. That I've actually, some of which I've never even used, some because the articles I've never got ahead or some because I've ended up using you know small snippets of the interviews in the articles. So I've still got these massive interviews that I've not used. So I've got an interview with um, Angie Nyhoff, who worked for Capstone, did loads of games based on movies, basically, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and stuff like that. Um, so with a new Bill and Ted film coming out, I thought that was quite a topical one to include. So I've got an interview with her. I'm trying to think of the other one. I've got an interview with the guy, Peter Calver, that's it, who ran Audiogenic. Yeah, so that was uh, obviously they did a lot of good stuff for the C64 and oh john cutter he worked originally for a company called gamestar who were taken over by activision they specialized in sports games but then he ended up at lucasfilm and worked on stuff like x-wing and stuff like that so yeah 
pretty successful career. So he, I had a really long, interesting interview with him for when for when I did an article on GameStar in um, Retro Gamer. Obviously, a lot of what he talked about in the interview didn't really fit in that article. So I've, I finally managed to use that entire interview, which is great. So people will get to see it, you know, the whole thing finally, basically. So I absolutely love those kind of visual compendium books as well. And you're doing one with Bitmap Books, which is uh, Atari 2600 and 7800. And they're just so amazing. I've got the Amiga one at home and just seeing the graphics on it and being able to browse for it is beautiful. What, what's in store for this visual compendium? I believe it's the biggest one that, that Sam and Bitmap have done, which is... Um pretty cool things i think a lot of that's obviously we're combining the, the 2600 and the 7800 which kind of made sense because when sam approached me about working on them because he wanted someone who was kind of really um focused on atari and, and, and knew their stuff so he, he kind of called me sort of day one to say you know is this something you'd be interested in getting involved in and then he took my advice um because he was originally going to do one on kind of all atari consoles so i was like yeah that doesn't really work i think you it needs to be more focused like your other books. And I suggested combining the 2600 and the 7800 because obviously the 7800 is backwards compatible, can play all 2600 games. And the 7800's got quite a small library, so it'd be hard to do a book on that on its own. So it kind of gets them both together. Um, so it's covering the library to both systems. And we've got some absolutely outstanding interviews in there. Like we've got um, Joe DeCure, who obviously designed helped design the atari 2600 and obviously later the eight atari 8 bit and worked on the amiga as well so we've got a really nice interview with him about you know the design of the system and how it came about uh we've got michael katz in there who obviously you interviewed recently on the podcast yeah, thanks to you <laughs> yeah so he's in there that's how that whole thing came about so he he's gives a really really honest interview and what's really interesting about his interview is because obviously he worked at atari during the the, the, the trammel era so he goes a lot into what Jack Trammell was like to work with, you know, which a lot people always seem really fascinated about Jack. Mm. You know, he's this real enigma about him being, you know, sort of really hard faced and uh, and stuff like that. And I think um, the Commodore guy you interviewed recently, his name escapes Michael Tomchik. Yes. Is it? Yeah. He obviously talked a lot about, didn't he, about Jack and what he was like. Mm -hmm. uh, and Michael talked a lot about that to me when I interviewed him. So he's in there. Um, and um, we've also got uh, an interview with David Dent who the name might, won't be familiar, but he was the designer of Ninja Golf. Now, those visual compendiums, like, they all have specific looks. So I remember seeing the Spectrum one, and that looked totally different to the Amiga one. What are we going to see with the 2600? Are we going to see, like, lots of wood grain? Are we going to see kind of rounded-off edges? <laughs> uh, any surprises? It's a very, very stylish book. It keeps in keeping with... You know the, the eras and and there's you know some nice photography in there but one thing that is really good that will please a lot of people that's in there is you, you might be familiar with the art of atari book you know that went through all the, the box art and stuff that was on atari games because it was so stunning because back then box art you know really meant something yeah um back in those days so there is a whole section of the book that goes into the the design aesthetic and the box art with atari as well so see, that's that's part of the book. And the guy, uh, Tim Lapatino, who did the art of Atari, he's been involved in this one as well. So he's given some some good input as well. So it kind of crosses over into that as well. So not just the, the screenshots like you see in a lot of the books. We've looked at the um, the whole design aesthetic of the, the consoles and the, the box art as well. 
Well, Karen, I know it's going to be fantastic, you know, with your, your level of research you do and your expertise and uh, Sam's attention to detail and his brilliant books he puts out. Um, that's going to be out in April then. Is, is that what we're expecting? The, I the, believe the, so. Yeah, I've been okay. told April, yeah. Yeah, officially licensed by Atari. So um, that's pretty big. Atari, you've never done that. This will be the very first officially Atari licensed book. And you're not taking it easy either. You're still doing stuff with uh, Guru Larry. You've got more um, fact hunts on the way. I am, yeah. We've start, he started up doing them again recently. Yeah. Um, and I've written a few episodes with him with him recently. And I've just done a – he's got a really good one coming up. I, I think it's coming out any time now, actually, which is on um, the story of – well, it's a fact hunt into the many Tetris 2s because there are actually lots of games that kind of called themselves Tetris 2, so it's into that. So that's a really fascinating story, and I kept finding more and more and more on that one. So I think that will probably be actually one of the best fact hunts yet. It's certainly one of the ones that I've – been most interested in while i've been writing it if you know what i mean i kept finding out new stuff while i was writing it because wasn't it the case that the original guy had the license to tetris then lost it and then there was all kind of battles it sounds like it'll be a, a good drama that episode yeah because yeah, yeah. the original creator thought he owned it russian government said they owned it because it was under communism UK wasn't they it owned so, it. yeah 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 well, he got it back again eventually but yeah it was a re- it's a really complicated story the whole tetris story anyway it's a real minefield well kieran you know you've got a lot going on it sounds like an exciting start to 2020 we'll obviously put links to the youtube channel and uh, the, the books as well in, in the, this week's show notes so thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure talking to you yeah it's been lovely cheers guys mm-hmm.